0: This is the Sideev.net podcast for news and views on science and global development. Today, we look at whether it's possible to bring internet connectivity in areas where electricity and infrastructure are lacking. Now we need to understand that there is no single
1: solution to solve the universal internet access problem. That is, there is no one-size-fits-all solution here.
0: We hear how after more than three decades of rapid growth, China is entering a new phase of economic development focused on quality by promoting economic growth whilst also driving down its greenhouse gas emissions.
2: So it's our hope that this new development model in China will come to be seen increasingly as a new development model for other countries.
0: We learn how two decades of watching out for hidden nuclear explosions has created a stockpile of data that scientists across the world can use for their research.
3: Science doesn't have frontiers. They shouldn't hear nuclear test monitoring and then think that the technology we use are only for nuclear test monitoring and feel that this is far from their priorities.
0: And we discover how insurance for low-income groups is crucial in rebuilding communities after natural disasters.
4: Well-regulated insurance decreases people's exposures to risk through the conditions of the insurance contracts themselves.
0: Welcome to the SciDev.net podcast for news and views on science and global development. In our June podcast, we talked about how internet decentralisation could be a way of making global internet access a reality. This month, we're continuing with that idea, and look at how a new portable router could bring internet connectivity to some of the most remote and isolated areas. Well, here in the studio to discuss this is Kevin Pollock. Hi there, Kevin. Hi there, John.
5: Yes, so the device is called Brick and was designed and prototyped by a team of software developers, engineers, and technologists from Nairobi. It's about as big as a regular size brick, hence the name, and this small size and its light weight make it a good portable option for connecting to the internet. The makers claim it has enough backup power to survive a blackout, and it can be recharged like a regular device, or by a car battery or solar panels, in places without a reliable electricity infrastructure. BRIC uses a global SIM card to connect wirelessly to the Internet. And for places without mobile service, there's an antenna which can make a satellite connection.
0: Well, it sounds like a good idea for bringing Internet access to places with very scarce and unreliable services, especially in developing countries. Presumably, that's really the area of focus.
5: Yeah, it it is. And um, I spoke with Arjuna sathya who leads the Networking for Development Lab at the University of Cambridge and is an expert in the field of universal internet access. I asked him to review the BRIC technology and if he thinks it can help bring global access to the internet.
1: Definitely, BRIC is a great idea catered to the mobile users. However, I do not think BRIC caters to the need for affordable internet access. The reason is that the backhaul connectivity provided by BRIC is either through cellular or satellite, and they both cost money. Considering that there are several rural areas in Africa that do not have cellular infrastructures and hence lack coverage, satellite is the only option. However, BRIC uses the inmarsat BGAN network, which is very expensive, and you get data rates of, say, 384 kbps download speeds and up to 240 kbps upload speeds, which I do not think is really broadband. Hence, I don't think BRIC would be a great fit to solve the problem of universal affordable internet access. But I would like to point out something, that we need to understand that there is no single solution to solve the universal internet access problem.
0: That is, there is no one size fits all solution here. Now price is a big issue with Brick, isn't it? How much does it cost? Well,
5: the unit itself costs $250, but you also have to pay for a global SIM card from a local telecom provider. And that price depends on the country you're in. Arjuna thinks that brick could be very useful for business people and reporters who travel a lot and need reliable internet access, but who can also afford to pay the higher
1: costs. But it doesn't necessarily make sense for poor communities and individuals. Affordability is a major issue, considering there are several people in developing regions who are on daily wages of less than $1 a day. And they already have more pertinent problems, such as healthcare, education, access to clean water, electricity, etc. to solve. In some countries, the cost of broadband access is almost 40 times to 100 times their national average income. We need to solve the affordability problem, and this requires not only new business models, but also better regulatory environments, encouraging fairer competition between network operators.
0: It does seem that the solution is more complex than just a new device, then. Yeah, that's true. But one aspect
5: of BRIC that Arjuna thought was really positive was the use of satellites for connecting to the
1: web. I strongly believe that satellite technology is needed to serve underserved areas that cannot be reached by terrestrial infrastructures. The advent of KU and KA-band satellites have actually enabled higher-speed broadband access. Avanti, which is one of the largest satellite operators in Europe, launched the HILAS-2 KA-band satellite in 2012, providing low-cost, two-way data communications across Europe, Middle East, and Africa. So Avanti has been actually using the satellite coverage in Africa to push educational content at very low cost to rural African schools. We can clearly exploit the inherent nature of satellites to transmit such content in a very cost-effective manner to rural and remote
0: communities. But don't satellites just act as a middleman in the process? Isn't it important to consider where the internet content is actually coming from initially?
5: That's a great question, John,
1: and one that our Arjuna touched on in our conversation.
0: There are several technological challenges,
1: mainly in terms of accessibility. We recently conducted a measurement study of the African content delivery network infrastructure, mainly Google. And we found out that majority of the traffic from Africa are redirected to the Google caches in Europe and the US. This is a very relevant finding, considering that Google has deployed Google caches in some parts of Africa, mainly serving the well-connected countries. So latency to access Google-like cloud services in Africa is high, and hence there is poor quality of experience, and we need to solve such problems.
0: It seems that given all of the limitations in the global networking system, that BRIC can be a really good choice for getting internet access in places with those very unreliable services.
5: Yeah, it will likely be very useful for people in the working population and schools in remote areas that have the financial resources to pay for it. But those are groups that already value the internet for its benefits. What about people and groups that may have never heard of the internet, or even understand what they can gain from it?
1: Solving the social challenge is probably the most important problem. There is a significant number of the population who do not see the value of the internet. This is reasonable considering that they do not have access to the internet in the first place. We could probably provide an internet access infrastructure to a community, but if there is no suitable content or services that are catered to the interests of the community, then you are probably going to see a few takers. For example, if I can say, the World Bank in 2004 funded the East Sri Lanka program, where they put several internet kiosks in the villages. However, the program wasn't successful due to the lack of content in the native language.
0: And that was Arjuna Sealan talking to Kevin Pollock about BRIC. And thanks to Kevin for coming in today. Stay with us to learn more about how the world's biggest greenhouse gas emitter is reshaping its energy landscape, all later in the podcast. You're listening to the SciDev.net podcast for news and views on the world of science and international development. Now, over the past 30 years, China's economy has grown faster than any other country in the world, thanks in large part to following a strategy of heavy investment in strong exports and energy-intensive manufacturing. While this strategy helped lift hundreds of millions of Chinese people out of poverty, it also has increased inequality, pollution, congestion and greenhouse gas emissions. But the Chinese government is now taking steps to improve the situation. A recent report details China's so-called new normal development model. Reporter Kevin Pollock is back and he spoke with Fergus Green, co-author and policy analyst at the Grantham Research Institute on Climate Change and the Environment at the London School of Economics in the UK. He sent us this interview.
5: The report is titled China's New Normal. I'm wondering, what is the old normal?
2: So China's old normal is shorthand for the development model that predominated in China up until maybe one, two years ago, and particularly strongly in the first decade of this century, characterised by very, very high economic growth rate, averaging more than 10% a year, and a very strong focus on investment in heavy industry, things like steel and cement plants, So they're using a lot of energy, and then that energy was
5: primarily powered by coal-fired power. You mentioned peak emissions Mm. in the report. What does peak emissions of greenhouse gases mean?
2: So peak emissions just means that the emissions of greenhouse gases produced within a particular country
5: no longer rising. Is a goal of reaching a peak, you know, around 2030, like uh, China has claimed, is that meaningful without specifying what that peak is?
2: I think it is still meaningful, particularly if you go backwards a few years when China's emissions were growing very, very strongly. It was clear that even in order to peak in 2030, that would still require quite a big big turnaround. But the other reason it it is is meaningful is that China didn't just commit to peaking its emissions around 2030. In the joint announcement with President Obama and and President Xi, uh, President Xi also committed China to achieving 20% of its primary energy supply from non-fossil fuel sources by 2030. So that provides sort of a way of narrowing what's possible over the next 15 years with China's commitment. So in our report, we look at a range of different energy sources that China could use to power its economy and increasingly what that mix is both likely to be in the next five or 10 years and then in the part of our report where we're a bit more prescriptive in saying what they could or perhaps ought to do, in the period after emissions peak, we look at the roles of different potential technologies and energy sources. In that, the role of gas we think is likely to play a particularly strong role over the next five or ten years, and that's partly for electricity supply and partly for use in industry and households. Now the way China's getting that gas is on the one hand increasing reliance on imported sources, both liquefied natural gas that's shipped and also pipelines um, from Russia and Central Asia. And so what we say is in the 2020s, it's likely that China might be increasingly less willing to rely on imported sources for energy and security reasons, but also in terms of emissions. The critical thing is, will the gas be replacing coal or will it be replacing renewables? And and if it replaces coal over the next five to 10 years, well, that will help get China off coal, which is obviously good for local air pollution and uh, relatively good for climate change, although it will still cause emissions, they'll be lesser than they would from coal. But increasingly, China will need to move towards a renewables-dominated system. There'll be some nuclear there as well, um, but zero emission sources of energy. What kind of structural changes are we seeing now? Sure. So this, this takes us back to this question about the new normal versus the old normal. So in the new normal, we're seeing very, very strong structural changes. So first of all, if you look at the growth rate, Uh, We've seen a a fall in China's growth rate from the dizzying heights of double digits to now around seven, seven and a half percent and likely to moderate further. Still strong, but much less economic activity going on than when it was growing at 10 percent. And you're also seeing a structural shift in the sources and composition of that growth away from heavy industries like steel and cement towards both services and towards manufacturing industries that use less energy, that are more innovative and more productive. Um, so that's a key part of China's economic modernisation strategy, but it also means that the industries are using much less energy. And then the other side of the structural change is about the composition of energy supply as China moves away from coal, both by clamping down on, on coal in key economic regions and by expanding its supply of gas and other thermal sources, nuclear, and critically, hydro, wind and
5: solar as well. So people have said that you know, for every coal power plant that the US is not building or reducing that China is building five or ten more.
2: So that claim can be very misleading and we look at this issue very closely in our report because it is true that China is still building more coal-fired power stations but what we find is that these coal-fired power stations are being used less. So the problem, if you like, for China here is inefficient investment In in coal-fired power stations not increasing coal use and increasing emissions. The reasons we're seeing these continued investment in coal-fired power stations even though they're being used less has to do with the incentives in China's state planning um, system. So these new coal-fired power plants we're seeing come online now were the result of planning and investment decisions made four or five years ago and so we're likely to still continue to see some of these plants coming online working their way through the project pipeline, but the crucial thing to focus on is whether they're being used and the amount of coal use overall, and we find that coal-fired electricity generation and coal use in electricity are both
5: falling. You know, climate change is a global issue, and although this idea of China reducing its greenhouse gas emissions is great, this new model development that you're talking about, does it have influence on other emerging economies? So it, it could do, and I think an interesting area for
2: future research would be how China could Export, if you like, its new development model to the countries, particularly in which it invests heavily. So, China's a a major investor in a lot of developing countries and it's invested a lot of foreign direct investment flows from China. So, as as it does that, our hope is that China will see that it's also in in its interests to increasingly invest in, in projects overseas that are low carbon, environmentally friendly. Uh, and, and so on. And that's in China's interest for a few reasons. One is China does want to avoid climate change as well. And if all of these other countries that are rapidly developing do so in a carbon intensive way, that makes it very, very hard for the world to deal with climate change, which is, of course, bad for China too. But also, as China is trying to reduce its own emissions and air pollution, an important part of that is bringing down the costs of clean technologies, And the more other countries are investing in clean technologies as well, then the bigger the global markets for those technologies, the more prices will come down through learning by doing and and so on. Um, And then the other factor is China's looking to become a leading producer and already is actually a leading producer in a number of low carbon technologies like solar panels and wind farms. So the more China develops those industries domestically, then the more it should see export opportunities to the countries in which it's investing. So it's our hope that this new development model in China will come to be seen increasingly as a new development model for other
0: countries. And that was Kevin Pollock talking to Fergus Green about China's new normal. Stay with us to learn more about how nuclear programmes are delivering some interesting data. This is the SciDev.net podcast, our monthly show for news and analysis on the world of science and global development. Now, Most countries in the world have signed a treaty promising not to develop nuclear weapons. This effort to keep the world free of nuclear explosions has actually generated a wealth of data that scientists can use, even if their research has nothing to do with nuclear science. SciDev.net reporter Tanya Rabesandratana is in the studio to tell us more about this scientific treasure trove.
6: Hello John. Hi. You certainly remember that in 2013 North Korea announced that it had carried out nuclear explosions. Now, what I didn't know at the time is that there is an international monitoring system in place that detected those nuclear tests and alerted other countries before the North Korean government even made its official announcement. To find out more about this monitoring system, I spoke with Lassino Zerbo. He leads the CTBTO in Austria. That's the organization that promotes the Comprehensive Nuclear Test Ban Treaty and that looks after its giant verification system.
3: We are able to detect today any nuclear test explosion that could be relevant for the development of a nuclear weapon. If we detect the event, we make those specification of this event available to our member state. And then they will then draw the conclusion on the location, the magnitude of the event and the decision that it's a nuclear test. Because let's face it, somebody can just bluff, do an explosion, a chemical explosion to say, oh, I'm a nuclear power country.
0: So how do we know if a country is bluffing or if there's been a real nuclear explosion?
6: Well, that's where the science and the technology come in. Zerber himself was a geophysicist before he moved on to diplomacy, and he explained that there are about 300 stations spread around the world that monitor the planet 24-7.
3: Yeah, 90 countries that will cover the 300 station, And some countries have more, some countries have only one station, but that's not the issue. What is important to know is that we don't detect by a single station. We work by triangulation, meaning you need at least three stations to contribute to the detection and the positioning of one event. So the system
0: covers the whole planet?
6: Yes, the CTBTO actually has a great map on their website where you can see how the different types of stations are spread out across the globe. They are seismometers, very sensitive ones. There are also hydroacoustic stations that pick up sound waves underwater And there are also infrasound stations that detect waves in the atmospheres, frequencies that humans cannot perceive.
0: But how do we know that it is a nuclear test and not an earthquake or a mine blast?
6: Well, that's where the fourth type of station is really essential. The monitoring system also has laboratories that detect radioactive particles in the air. That's what Zerber calls the smoking gun. So we've seen an example of how the four technologies work together after the disaster at the Fukushima nuclear power plant in Japan. In twenty eleven.
3: You can detect an event, an explosion. The only way you know that it's as or it is of nuclear nature, it's when you get that radioisotope from the station that we call the radionuclear station. You remember the Fukushima accident in Japan? So during Fukushima, our seismic and hydroacoustic were able to detect and give precision with regard to warning system. Uh, to the earthquake and the tsunami, the devastating tsunami. Our infrasound proved that the nuclear power plant has exploded, and our radionuclear technology followed the dispersion of radioisotope around the globe. So this is how the four technologies were put to test during the Fukushima accident.
6: So the system is very useful to help provide better disaster warnings. But it can do much more. Researchers can use this information to study a broad range of topics. For example, some scientists use two decades of CTBTO data for climate modelling. Some have used the hydroacoustic data to follow whales underwater. And there are even applications for space science.
3: Uh, if you take the Chelyabinsk uh, meteorite in Russia, when it was coming close to surface, that was detected by infrasound technology. And NASA in the US as used the CTBT international monitoring system to identify with precision the entrance of this meteorite on our uh, on our space if if i put it this way
0: so the data is a kind of byproduct of nuclear test monitoring that scientists can tap into
6: yes exactly researchers can get the data for free as long as they use the data sets for scientific purposes Zerbo himself is a scientist, he's from Burkina Faso, and he extends the invitation to his colleagues in developing countries.
3: What I want to tell them is that uh, the world is global today, science doesn't have frontiers, and that they shouldn't hear nuclear test monitoring and then think that the technology we use are only for nuclear test monitoring and feel that this is far from their priorities. There is a lot to be done with CTBT data from the international monitoring system.
0: La Zerbo, and thanks Tanya for coming in. Thank you, John. Well, later this month, heads of states and finance ministers from all over the world will gather in the Ethiopian capital Addis Ababa for the third International Conference on Financing for Development. With this conference, which is part of the post-2015 development process, the UN hopes to open up discussion on how to provide effective economic support for the development of poor nations. Part of the conversation will hinge on the tools needed to build nations' resilience and kickstart economic growth in places that are highly vulnerable. And last month, the G7, a group representing the seven most advanced economies in the world, mentioned the importance of insurance schemes in achieving this. The group has committed to insure up to 400 million people in low- and middle-income countries against climate-related hazards by 2020. But why is insurance so important for development, and is this goal really achievable? Multimedia reporter Lou Del Bello investigated and sent us this interview.
7: In 2013, three times as many people lost their homes to natural disasters than to war, despite the fact that 2013 was a devastating year for conflict but an exceptional one for natural disasters. Even so, 22 million people were displaced by extreme weather events such as floods and hurricanes. This year the world is taking stock of the progress made in shielding the most vulnerable against extreme poverty. And economists as well as policymakers agreed that there can be no resilience without an effective insurance system. I wanted to know more about how insurance could help against climate hazards and if it was a tool the poor could really afford. So I spoke with Ana gonzalez Pérez a fellow of the Institute for Sustainability Leadership at the University of Cambridge in the UK. She told me that other than paying people compensation after natural disasters, insurance schemes also help reduce
4: risk. I asked her how. Insurance policies can indeed influence risk reduction. Well-regulated insurance decreases people's exposures to risk through the conditions of the insurance contracts themselves to keep claims low. This, in turn, introduces behaviours that protect lives, livelihoods and assets. For example, house fire insurance may require the installation of a smoke alarm in our homes which has the added benefit of making us safer the same applies to climate risk and natural hazard exposure insurance for example can enforce building codes when new buildings are constructed which adapts property to cope better with future shocks In rural areas, for example, access to insurance products may require farmers to adopt climate smart solutions, from new technologies to different crops and resistant seeds. So better
7: regulation is important to make insurance schemes work. This way, communities can improve resilience by reducing their exposure to risk, and the premium payments will be lower. But can the poor really afford the upfront costs or preparedness.
4: Insurance can be through direct programs, such as microinsurance distributed by a private company or by a cooperative arrangement, or indirect programs, where the government is insured and, in case of a claim, the government itself distributes the money to identified groups of low income individuals in trouble usually for the very low income sector of population some form of donor help is needed as there is an increasing recognition that insurance prevents people from falling back into poverty once they have managed to escape the poverty trap once the risk is lowered
7: who calculates the reduction in the premiums and who pays if the insured communities can't.
4: This is where regulation, supportive insurance regulation, intervenes to establish a balance between reasonable levels of required resilience and the insurance company being solvent to distribute payouts if a loss occurs. Insurance is a regulated activity and companies operate within the parameters established by regulation. Climate risk insurance also allows risk to be transferred onto national and international markets, protecting communities that would not be able to share the risk amongst themselves. In direct relation to a changing climate, this allows risks to be shared globally and compensate between the most and the least affected by natural hazards and climate risks. Okay, so politics and
7: regulation can strike a balance between the interest of the insurance companies and the needs of the poor. But how do insurance companies measure the damage and its cost? And do they need to assess how much of the damage is the result of climate change?
4: Approximately 70 to 80% of natural hazards and related disasters are driven by climate risk. For the insurance industry, there is no need of distinguishing what the source is, if natural variability or climate change driven. The insurance sector has very good ways of assessing current levels of climate risk through catastrophe modeling. A good example of this is Africa Risk View. It's the software used by the African risk capacity, which insures member states against extreme drought conditions. Africa Risk View incorporates historical and modelled climate, exposure and loss data to enable countries to evaluate the impacts of events of different magnitudes, such as one in five or one in 20-year droughts.
0: That was Lou Del Bello talking to Ana gonzalez Palaez about how better insurance can help build a more equitable future. Well, that's all for this month from me, John Escombe, and from our team here in London. Stay with us for more news and analysis on the world of science and development. Until next time, goodbye from all of us.